Forget frequently asked questions. Common sense, common knowledge, or Google. How about advice from a real genius? 95% of people in any profession are good enough to be qualified and licensed. 5% go above and beyond. They become very good at what they do, but only 0.1% are real geniuses. Richard Jacobs has made it his life's mission to find them for you. He hunts down and interviews geniuses in every field. Sleep science, cancer, stem cells, ketogenic diets, and more. Here come the geniuses. This is the Finding Genius Podcast with Richard Jacobs. Before we begin, a note from our sponsor. I'm Richard Jacobs, Executive Director of the nonprofit Finding Genius Foundation and host of the Finding Genius Podcast. In late 2016, I was rear-ended at 65 miles an hour by a truck on the highway, which sent me off-road into a ditch. The impact of the collision gave me a concussion and other injuries. At the hospital, a CT scan showed that I had thyroid nodules, which turned out to be cancer. It was then, when I had a biopsy in my neck, that I realized, even if I was a millionaire, I wouldn't want a second or a third biopsy due to the pain and the invasiveness of it. And appointments at that time for thyroid experts were three to six months out. And I was worried about dying now, even if that was irrational. So because of this, I've decided to raise money to conduct a literature review on steroids, on the causes of anxiety and depression, a condition that affects well over 50 million people in the United States and hundreds of millions worldwide. Our goal is to create a codex, a guide that reveals all possible treatments for anxiety and depression for people that live with the condition or for loved ones that have it, as my wife and my son do. To find out more about our fundraiser, visit FindingGeniusFoundation.org and click on Current Initiatives. And now, to our guest. All right, so today I have Michael Dugan, MD. He's BioCEPS Senior Vice President, Chief Medical Officer, and Medical Director. BioCEPT is spelled B-I-O-C-E-P-T. Uh, Dr. Dugan leads uh, their clinical strategic development as Chief Marketing Officer and oversees uh, their CAP-accredited CLIA Clinical Laboratory as a medical director. He's an experienced physician and biotech executive who has directed several major commercial reference laboratories, and he helped launch numerous novel molecular diagnostic assays and platforms used in oncology, infectious disease, and public health applications like cancer screening, monitoring diagnosis, and therapy selection. Very, very extensive bio. Uh, We're going to talk today about BioCEP's new liquid biopsy assay called C-Inside. It's spelled C-N-S-I-D-E. Uh, uses cerebrospinal fluid to detect and analyze metastatic cancer in the brain or spinal cord. So, Michael, thank you very much for coming. Thank you, Richard. If you would, tell me a bit about uh, your background, and then I want to ask you about Biocept, uh, how you you know came to the company and what, what it's working on. Sure. Well, I'm, I'm, I came to the company about a, a year ago. I'm, I'm a pathologist who has spent most of my career working with commercial laboratories and, and companies that were developing novel diagnostic tests. And um, came to Biocep because they were using some technology that was very interesting to look at uh, tumor cells and tumor DNA in the blood. And uh, we've taken that technology and we've adapted it for looking at tumor cells and tumor DNA and the cerebral spinal fluid, specifically to evaluate people with metastatic cancer involving the brain or central nervous system. And that's become our principal focus more recently. Okay, so this is the uh, liquid biopsies for... Is this for solid tumors or for liquid tumors or potentially all of them? Mostly intended for solid tumors right now. That's predominantly lung and breast and also some tumors like melanoma, uh, but it also gastroesophageal tumors or a variety of other tumors that can go there. We've even had head and neck tumors and 
other things that we've, we've studied, and also some primary brain tumors that we've studied. Leukemias and lymphomas can also go to the brain. It's, a, it's a, an area where there's a high risk for that, and certain pediatric tumors can as well. Uh, for the most part, we've done just some exploratory studies in those areas, but we're, we're concentrating in the, the solid tumors that would afflict adults primarily at this time, just because they're the most numerous. Well, also too, I mean, liquid tumors seem to be a bit easier to uh, deal with and treat, you know, with our current uh, standard of treatment, but solid is harder. You have the, you know, the heterogeneity of the complex structure of the tumor, you know, the anoxic and the, you know, hypoxic regions, et cetera. That's very true. There, these patients are often, uh, you know, when they develop a brain metastasis, they're often kind of given up for dead and just sent to hospice. But what we found is that with some of the newer therapies that target specific molecular alterations, these patients can really live a long time, more than a year if properly treated. And so that's a huge difference over weeks to live if you're untreated. And uh, we think we can make a significant difference in the, these lives and we can we can change the way in which certain advanced cancers are treated, particularly for patients who are that still have a pretty good performance. Uh, otherwise, you know, many of the patients may be controlled in the rest of their body and not have any evidence of disease. And the only manifestation of their disease is in the central nervous system. So what phenomena are you relying on to be able to use a liquid biopsy for these solid tumors? Is it that the tumors produce exosomes or extracellular vesicles that you're, you know, you're gathering? Or what is it that you're looking for in the blood? It's embarrassingly more simple than that. We're actually looking for the cells themselves. Uh, so interestingly enough, long before it became popular to look for the DNA in the blood, it was popular to try to look for cells in the blood. And blood's kind of difficult to look for cells because they don't last there a very long time. Uh, they get filtered out by the spleen and the liver, the kidneys, and even the lungs as they go through this small capillary beds. And so the half-life of a tumor cell in your body, unless it lodges and grows somewhere, is pretty short, uh, probably less than an hour. And uh, if, in contrast, if it works its way through what's called a blood-brain barrier or this, this structure in the brain, in the, those little hollow spaces, the ventricles inside the brain, if it works its way in through there and gets into that fluid, it's kind of like a cul-de-sac. It just can move around a little bit, you know, and sort of go back and forth, but doesn't really get back out of there into the bloodstream. So it gets trapped in there and the cells can accumulate. And we have seen tremendous numbers of cells in these patients that have advanced uh, presentations of tumor involving the brain that make it quite easy to capture them and quite easy to enumerate them uh, in a quantitative fashion, which is helpful both for the diagnosis as well as for evaluating the treatment response. So, okay, so you, so the tumor itself will shed cells into the blood, and mm -hmm. that's where you're picking up on? Tumors shed cells into the blood, and we do that kind of testing. We've done blood testing for years. What's novel is we've shifted to testing the cerebral spinal fluid directly in patients who have uh, suspected involvement in the brain. Uh, physicians can do what's called a lumbar puncture and, or a spinal tap, and they can draw off about five cc's of fluid that if that's like milliliters or a small tube of fluid that they can use for evaluation. And traditionally, they've used what's called cerebral spinal fluid cytology, uh, CSF cytology, to look at that. And that's simply a, a way to concentrate the cells by centrifuging this, the fluid and it sort of concentrates the cells in the bottom of a tube. They then draw off the fluid and they resuspend it in, a, in a, another bit of fluid and spin it down into, onto a slide. And they try to try to get that where they can look at a few of those cells on a, on a slide. It's not really a great, it's not really a great way to do it because the cells um, get disrupted in that process. And they, they, they just have to by luck sort of adhere to a slide 
and then survive the staining process and be and then they could be looked at under a microscope by a pathologist so it's kind of a qualitative assessment and it it's subject to a lot of cell loss during the processing given that uh, tumors may be metastatic by the time you sample and the heterogeneity of both the primary and the metastases how would you know without like a correlating biopsy the, of the main tumor or other tumors the cells you're getting are a representation of what the tumor is or what if it's a metastasis that you didn't even know about on a scan? Definitely need a combination of approaches. Often they'll do, if they'll do a, sometimes they'll just treat brain tumors without any knowledge of their genetic composition. They'll just do radiation therapy. If they think that they may want to add a targeted therapy, they may pursue a biopsy. Um, where we have an advantage is in the, when they have an advanced form of tumor, uh, where there's plenty of these cells going around in the cerebral spinal fluid, we can actually pluck a small sample, uh, isolate out enough cells to, to more thoroughly characterize them and give them a, an answer with regard to the genetic composition of those cells that, that leads to, and I'm talking about when I say genetic, I don't mean necessarily their inherited genes, but genes that have been altered in the course of the development of the tumor. And we can use those to characterize the cells and then provide guidance that would be used for therapy, therapy decisions with more targeted agents. Okay. But again, the liquid biopsies that you guys are working on bringing, bringing into the clinic, what in particular are you looking for? And how do you know that it's going to give you the right signal? Like what, what kinds of cancers would this apply to? And again, what are you looking for in the blood? In the, in the blood or the cerebral spinal fluid, we look for similar markers. These are, these are typically markers like um, you may have heard of HER2 new in breast or EGFR in lung or BRAF and melanoma. These are specific alterations that are seen in a high frequency of those cases. And they're associated with specific therapies that can inhibit those type of molecular alterations. So her 2 new leads to the overexpression of a receptor on the surface of the cells that is targeted by a drug called trastuzumab. That's a, is the generic name or the more common uh, trademark name is receptin. And we can, we can identify cells that would have that marker and, um, that's important because sometimes the primary tumor might be HER2 negative, but when it metastasizes, it becomes HER2 positive. And as it turns out, the treatment with Herceptin or Trastuzumab in that setting is very advantageous for the patient. They, they tend to do much better if they identify the HER2 positive cells and treat for that specific alteration. They can live for quite a bit longer than if they're treated in an untargeted way uh, with more conventional chemotherapy. Before we continue... I've been personally funding the Finding Genius podcast for four and a half years now, which has led to 2,700 plus interviews of clinicians, researchers, scientists, CEOs, and other amazing people who are working to advance science and improve our lives and our world. Even though this podcast gets 100,000 plus downloads a month, we need your help to reach hundreds of thousands more worldwide. Please visit FindingGeniusPodcast.com and click on Support Us. We have three levels of membership from 10 to $49 a month, including perks such as the ability to see ahead in our interview calendar and ask questions of upcoming guests, transcripts of podcasts you're interested in, the ability to request specific topics or guests, and more. Visit FindingGeniusPodcast.com and click support us today. Now back to the show. Where are you at in the process to bring this to clinic? What's, uh, what needs to be done from here? Well, it's a, it's a great question. We're actually already in the clinic. We're being used by academic institutions across the country. Um, many of them for the, in the blood-based testing, this has been an area of fertile exploration for over a decade. And many, uh, we've done many collaborative studies with, with institutions across the country. The area of cerebral spinal fluid is a much more 
uh, novel area. It's just more recently been possible to do this. Basically, uh, we're actually reviving a technology that was thought to be kind of passe, which was looking at the cells. Everybody in the blood space was kind of moving towards looking at just the DNA. And what we've said, what we found is that the cells are very informative in the cerebral spinal fluid because they really tell you whether or not you have metastasis. So is there a tumor? And that's a, that's a key decision point for therapeutic uh, decisions downstream because they might use uh, radiation or chemo rather than a targeted agent. Uh, secondarily, they might want to know, is there a specific molecular alteration for which I can use a targeted therapy? And so the question, is there a target for treatment is sort of our second major question. And then thirdly, with this quantitative way of approaching the cell count, we can really inform the response to therapy in a way that's never been possible before, not even possible in blood, because in blood, the range of cell count is very small, whereas in the CSF, we're seeing tremendous range in cell counts from 100,000 or more down to single digits. You can track that over time and give a very, very precise indication of response to therapy, which we like to say, is there a trend? Why would there be so many in the CSF? How would, how would the cancer cells get there? It's a good question. They get, they kind of get in there in an insidious way. The body normally produces cerebral spinal fluid at quite a large rate. Your blood, your brain rather gets a very large amount of blood flow to it. About a, about 20% of your blood flow in your entire body goes to your brain. And uh, when it goes through there, squeezes through these very small little capillaries that do have some leakage of fluid that generates through, through some structure known as the choroid plexus in the ventricles that provides the production of cerebral spinal fluid. And your brain kind of floats in that cerebral spinal fluid, which reduces its effective mass. It's, a, it's kind of a, an organ that, that just has to be in a cushioned space for obvious reasons. And uh, the fluid around it sort of bathes the, you know, bathes the brain, keeps it, keeps it from being impacted by minor bumps and shakes and so forth like that. And the, this, normally that cerebral spinal fluid is really, really has very few cells. It's kind of like almost as close to water as you can get inside your, inside your body. If the tumor cells get into that space, they don't have a ready, a ready way to get out. And so they tend to accumulate in there, forming the basis of, of uh, metastasis. What do you mean they form the basis? They, they build well, up and then they go out into the body and they I mean, en masse, a bunch of them take up residence to become a metastasis, or what do you mean? If you like this podcast, please click the link in the description to subscribe and review us on iTunes. Yeah, that's a good, good question. It, it, let me clarify the blood to distinguish it. In the blood, you could have tumor cells deriving from either a primary tumor or a metastatic tumor. However, if you find cells in the cerebral spinal fluid, you have defined metastasis in the central nervous system because you can't get them in there any other way unless you've already got brain metastasis. So that is, that is a, it's used diagnostically as a way to stage patients. You can confirm the presence of now you've got this brain involvement, which is otherwise very hard to confirm. You either have to do, you know, radiologic workup and or uh, brain biopsy or you've got to do conventional cytology, which I mentioned was already via a lumbar puncture. I already mentioned that's kind of fraught with difficulties and they don't typically get a very good yield out of conventional cytology. So we can basically take cytology, make it much more robust, much more sensitive and quantitative, and also drive some molecular information from those same cells that really informs how they're going to treat the patient. So this would be the identify a metastasis that is, is in the brain only. Or would it work for other organs as well? 
the thing is that the most of the brain tumors, there are primary brain tumors like gliomas, but most of the tumors in the brain are metastatic. They come from other organs, particularly the lung or the breast, and also the skin, the melanoma cases. They they will go uh, go there because they just have a very high propensity to move there if they have certain cellular characteristics. For instance, the worst of the breast cancers, like the triple negative breast cancers and the HER2 positive breast cancers are much more likely to go to brain. And some of the, some of the certain types of, of lung cancer, like EGFR mutant lung cancer or small cell lung cancer are very commonly uh, metastatic to brain. As is melanoma, it's one of the solid tumors that has the highest, although melanoma is not as common of a tumor in its primary location, it has a very high degree of, or high propensity to metastasize to brain, sometimes as the only manifestation of metastatic disease. Is brain, uh, is there such a thing as a metastatic chain, meaning like certain cancers will tend to metastasize here first, there next, and then there after that? And is the brain the first in the metastatic chain, or is that just not inclusive at all with tumors? Kind of a, I I wouldn't necessarily use the analogy of a chain. You might use a chain when you think of lymph nodes. You know, tumors go from like the pelvis up to the pelvic lymph nodes. So if you have like a uterine cancer, let's say a cervical cancer, or you have an endometrial cancer, it might go to a pelvic lymph node uh, and then up into the retroperitoneum before it gets up into the chest. But in this setting, uh, certain types of tumors that have a a robust blood supply, like a lung cancer, or they just you know, have a certain cellular phenotype, they're more commonly going to brain. And the reasons for that are not entirely understood, but the brain is sort of an immunologically privileged area. It doesn't have the normal blood flow around this in the cerebral spinal fluid. It's kind of a protected space. So once the cells get in there, it's hard for the immune system to attack them there. And, and so they can, they can sneak in there and grow unbeknownst to the rest of the body. And uh, that, that's kind of what makes it so difficult to, it sort of makes it somewhat insidious or hidden that they would develop this metastatic focus in the first place. And then once it gets in there, it's hard to diagnose it. It's hard to monitor it. It's hard to treat it. All these things. It's made a, it makes it very challenging for the, for the oncologist. Are there tons of um, sinks of the cerebral spinal fluid? And does it kind of sink all over the body? You know, it's produced in the brain. Um, it's produced in the brain. It flows down along the spinal cord and it just flowing. It might not be the right word. It's kind of like the tide going in and out with every heartbeat. You kind of get a pressure um, pushing it out and pushing it and then bringing it back. And it kind of circulates in a way that would be kind of like the beating of a heart or a tide or waves kind of inside the brain, as opposed to like the, in the blood, you get more of a consistent flow, although obviously the heartbeat is somewhat rhythmical as well. Uh, the blood flows in a much more consistent way around a circulatory route. Whereas in the CSF, once it gets in there, it's like I said, it's kind of like a, a pond of water that just has fluctuations in terms of pressure that moves cells around in a bit, move it around. Yeah, but they would have to be, uh, you know, the brain is always producing CSF. So if there's no sink, you would explode. It's got to go somewhere. Oh, yeah. So it comes out. Anyone it know where the sinks through. are? Yeah, it comes these little tiny structures around the periphery of the periphery of these this this space and it does get back into the bloodstream uh eventually uh it's not completely closed off it's just that cells don't usually traverse those ins and outs places it's mostly just limited to fluid movement and because of the way the membranes are set up they they limit the access of cellular uh, material as well as large proteins 
And so that ends up being a very, very, what we say, posse cellular or very few cells in that fluid normally. And when the cells do get in there, it's hard for them to get out. So they just grow and accumulate in there. So does anyone ever have a, uh, I don't know, a, a spinal tumor that forms? Do the cells set up a niche and make a, a metastatic tumor in the CSF system? Or do they just are present there in their reservoir that goes out to other parts of the body? Um, they can occur. They can occur there. Um, even primary tumors of the brain and spinal cord do occur, for which the manifestation might be the presence of those tumor cells in the cerebral spinal fluid. But more more often, if it's a primary tumor, it's usually causing some symptom of nerve palsy or you know something of that sort. And sometimes tumors get very large before they're discovered, and they generate somewhat like a mass effect by affecting a bunch of different functions around around where the mass is located. Um, but more often than not, the, there, there might just be very subtle findings like the buildup of pressure in the brain that leads to a headache or nausea. And it's not really a specific symptom. And uh, it's not really clear where the tumor is located. Why are you using uh, cells and why not, you know, again, extracellular vesicles or some other method? Is it just that you're getting plenty of data from the cells and like what, what things are you getting that people would miss if they only focused on, again, EVs or other methods to do a liquid biopsy? The other smaller subsets of cells, you know, can be helpful. The reason they're used in blood is because they might be more numerous than the cells. But the, generally, if you don't have the cell with the nucleus, you can't study the nuclear uh, DNA. So you can't study things like HER2 gene amplification or EGFR or any number of other things, or even even some of the nuclear proteins that are present, like androgen receptor or estrogen receptor, you can't study those um, from an exosome. You can only study those from a whole cell that has an intact nucleus. You you could pick up some so of them. So are you able of, to you, say what uh, you guys have found most helpful? You can pick up some information from DNA that's liberated from cells, but the, the context of that is somewhat different. And so you can, it's very good, like DNA can be very good for looking at a single mutation. It might be a little harder to assess for amplifications or copy number variations of a gene because it gets diluted out into a bunch of other cell-free DNA that derives from non-neoplastic cells. So when you have too much normal DNA and you've got this one abnormal DNA molecule. It's kind of like a needle in a haystack. So you have to have you have to have some way to concentrate it. And the way we can concentrate it in the cells is we can isolate those cells of interest, and then we can look at the DNA inside the nucleus with, you know, specific probes. Or we have ways to amplify DNA in a selective way to just look for the mutant DNA. How is this going to improve, you know, clinical outcomes? How do you envision it being used properly? Great question. Um, we're seeing some evidence from our KOLs, our key opinion leaders, right away, where they're saying, wow, I've never been able to do this before. They're finding things like alterations, molecular alterations that were not known in the primary tumor, that they're now seeing in the metastatic tumor in the brain that they can they can use for a targeted approach. And the targeted approach, as I mentioned, like, like Herceptin, can lead to a much better survival. There are also some instances, like with lung cancer, where they might be on a specific therapy, say an EGFR inhibitor, but because the patient has derived a new mutation, they would switch to a different EGFR inhibitor. And so that, that's, very, that's very helpful as well. And, um, and finally, they can actually just use the cell count to see whether or not the patient's improving or not. Uh, because sometimes the cell count uh, movement precedes the, symptom, uh, uh, the symptoms that they'll observe. And so they, they want to follow the patient's symptoms and see that they're getting better. That might not happen for a few weeks or months after the start of therapy. And it's not practical to do an MRI scan of the brain every week. So they end up waiting like eight to 
12 weeks to do another imaging. It depends on how the patient's doing. Six, let's say six to eight weeks at least to do another imaging. Well, we can have a lot of things going on in six weeks, and we can sample that patient repeatedly uh, if need be to really evaluate how they're doing. Okay. So what are the next steps for you guys over the next you know, few years here? What's going to be happening? What kind of, you know, what's the advancement of the project? Or is this simply getting it into more clinics or, you know, what's the path forward? Well, it's, it's a multi-pronged approach. So amongst the various things we're doing is, is we're expanding our experience with the assay and expanding our ability to do it for more tumor types. Um, so we have ongoing validation studies to look at a wider variety of tumors than what we initially launched. We initially launched just looking at lung and breast cancers. We anticipate expanding uh, the number of tumors that we can accommodate in the near future. We're also starting some very pivotal clinical studies on the heels of some of the preliminary uh, findings that we found, that some of which has been presented in posters and you know abstract presentations and is making its way into publications. Uh, we're going to embark on a on a on a more informative clinical study that's going to specifically look at the use of the test as a therapy response monitoring tool and a diagnostic tool for these patients with metastatic cancer. And then finally, we're also working to expand our capacity for the test. We've implemented a lot of new ways of processing these samples with more automation, uh, improved channel design, improved antibody cocktails, all sorts of stuff that we're doing to really improve the mechanics of the assay so that we can accommodate more samples and, and do it more efficiently. And, and finally, we're actually, as part of that, we're, I should have mentioned, we're taking advantage of some very sophisticated advanced digital imaging tools as well to characterize these cells, which is unlike anything that's done typically for routine cytology. Okay. Well, very good. Michael, thank you for coming on. And uh, where can people find out more about Biocept and about you? We're happy to uh, welcome you to the biocept.com website. We have, uh, we're, we're in the process of really upgrading that website with some more information and redesign. And we have featured on there some recent webinars uh, that we've done. One we did in April with two leading, two, I'm sorry, three leading KOLs. And we just recently did another one with the College of, America, College of American Pathologists newsletter. This is called the CAP Today. And CAP Today did a webcast uh, just about a week and a half ago that's, that's available as well. And those two sources of information provide a lot of detail about our test and some of the clinical experience of experts that have used it to date. Okay, very good. Well, again, Mike, thank you for coming on the podcast, and I appreciate it. And I hope this leads to, uh, you know, again, more targeted therapies for people that have, uh, you know, brain cancer and other associated ones. Thank you, Richard. I really appreciate the opportunity to speak with you today. If you like this podcast, please click the link in the description to subscribe and review us on iTunes. You've been listening to the Finding Genius Podcast with Richard Jacobs. If you like what you hear, be sure to review and subscribe to the Finding Genius Podcast on iTunes or wherever you listen to podcasts. And want to be smarter than everybody else? Become a premium member at FindingGeniusPodcast.com. This podcast is for information only. No advice of any kind is being given. Any action you take or don't take as a result of listening is your sole responsibility. Consult professionals when advice is needed.